Hey everyone, welcome to the Family Business Leadership Podcast with Robin Lechinger. Every day, Robin leads and guides family businesses as a lawyer and board member. This series, brought to you by SMB Interim Management and Yates Advisors, focuses on major challenges facing today's family-owned businesses. Each podcast will showcase frontline leaders exploring their personal experiences and best practice solutions. If you're a family leader, board member, shareholder, or professional advisor, you will welcome proven approaches to the challenges of governance, succession, leadership, strategy, multi-generation ownership, and more. And now, let's hear from Robin as she introduces us to today's guest. I am talking today with Josh Cantor. Josh started his career in 1987 as a business lawyer. And in 2001, with the death of his father imminent, Josh left private practice to take on the responsibility of reorganizing his family's business, tax, and estate structures, building the systems and tools necessary to function as a single family office, the topic we will be addressing today. For the past 20 years, as president of his family's single family office, Josh has been responsible for all things family office related. In addition to his own family's family office, for the past 10 years, Josh has also worked with a number of other families on many of these issues that you will be hearing about today. Josh has also been a frequent author and panelist on family and family office topics. Having seen firsthand through his own family's family office how difficult it is to document the non-financial information, Josh recently launched Leaf Planner, a digital document and information sharing platform. If you go to our website, you will find a link to Leaf Planner. Josh, welcome to the Family Business Leadership Podcast. I am thrilled to have you as a guest because I not only consider you a friend, but because I think your knowledge about family offices is unparalleled as you combine IQ, EQ, and RQ, relationship quotient, to the business of family offices. Welcome. Thank you, Robin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this with you today. So let's start by having you explain what precisely is a family office. And when you and I have had conversations about this, you've suggested that the answer lies in a conversation that you have with your family around what do you think of and want a family office to be for your family? Yeah, it's a great place to start this conversation. It's funny because I think family offices are typically enshrined in this idea of wealth and secrecy. You know, there's this cliche, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard. And cliches, of course, always have a basis in reality. So the cliche is when you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. And while it is kind of a silly comment, it really gets to this idea that every family office is a little bit different. When you and I have talked about that, what is it that you want your family office to be? I think you really have to think about what are the services related to your wealth that you're trying to provide to your family? And I think this is really important, particularly when we're talking about multi-generational wealth. So I'll give you a couple examples that I think you know go to this idea of a family office is not that secretive and it's not that um, shrouded in secrecy, right? When my dad in the 70s and 80s was a very successful lawyer in Chicago, had two secretaries, which I think you still called secretaries back in that day. 
one of them would run down to Michigan Avenue and pick up anything he needed, you know, at the photo store or wherever it was. Today in the family office world, you'd call that concierge services. But in the, in the world back then, right, it was just his secretary running down to do something for him. His firm was um, deeply involved in tax practice. And so they provided a number of tax services and accounting-related services, tax preparation, uh, through a separate entity, not part of the law firm, but it was kind of sitting on a floor next to the law firm. And today, you would call that an, an embedded family office. So all these things that are kind of routine, you know, really, really are not that, again, not that secretive. It's kind of what family offices do. I sit for about an hour every weekend and update my Quicken books, which I'm sure many of us do. And today, you'd call that data aggregation and reporting. And so it's all, you know, really the same idea of things that we do. It just gets a little bit more complicated and a little bit more deliberate as you get into this idea of what are the services you want your family office to provide to your family. And again, really when you're talking about multi-generational wealth. So when we're talking about family offices and each family figures out for themselves what these services are that they would like around their wealth, You've heard phrases like single family office, multifamily office. Maybe you could speak a little bit to what each of those different terms mean. Yeah, sure. Uh, the single family office is probably the most common when you really are talking about family offices. And all that really means is that it's a, an entity that's been created to provide services to a single family. Now, that may be multiple branches. It may be multiple generations, but it's typically of a, a single family that comes from some original matriarch and patriarch who started this whole process. The multifamily office, and, and we'll come back, I guess, maybe in a second to talk about maybe the structures of how people look at creating that. The multifamily office is really the same as a single family office, but it's typically servicing multiple families. So you really do have a barrier between not multiple related families, but multiple unrelated families where there's no connection between the families. So they're really a service provider. Uh, then you probably have what some people may have heard of is the, as I referred to earlier, right, the embedded family office. And that typically comes when a family has a large operating business and is providing a lot of these services, but they're doing it kind of through the operating business. And then the final one that's really more typical today is, or becoming actually more typical is the virtual family office. I would say it's mostly having a single, one or more internal people. So more like a single family office, but outsourcing a lot of the services that are being provided rather than hiring employees to do all of the services in-house. All of these are a little bit different, and that gets back to this idea of what is it that you're trying to provide to your family and which is the best structure in order to do that. So let's break each one of those different types down. Let's talk about the SFO or single family office, and you mentioned that you could do that through different structures. Why don't you talk a little bit about what those different structures look like and to the extent that you do or can provide some information as to why one structure might be better than another? Sure. Typically, I would say, you know, you're looking at a separate entity that's being created to run the single family office. A lot of families in a very simple case will just create an LLC to do that. Everybody's pretty familiar with the limited liability company structure at this point, And that's obviously a pretty easy way of doing it. Sometimes you would choose a C-Corp. And the typical reason for doing that might be uh, looking at a different ownership structure, looking at a different deductibility structure under the tax code. And then the most complicated of these is probably what people often refer to as the lender structure. And the lender structure is named after the lender family who won a tax case over their structure. And it's really set up to um, maximize the level of deductibility of expenses in a way that 
creates the single family office as an operating entity under the IRS code is really treated as a trader business. And by doing that, it gets a little bit more benefit from a tax perspective than some of these other structures. I would say that's really only for the most sophisticated people who are, who are really looking for that level of sophistication. Who typically owns the single family office? Is it all the family members? Is it a single family member? Is it a separate entity that owns the SFO? Who owns it? Yeah, it's an interesting question because the single family office is typically set up to not make any money. Um, it's really, or under, other than again, kind of the lender structure, which is, is really designed differently in order to be a trader business. Most, most single family offices are really an entity that, that brings in revenue from the, its clients, which are really either family members or family business enterprise entities. And then, so it's bringing in that revenue and it's basically paying its expenses and it's, it's ultimately designed to make very little money or not to really make any money. So the ownership is not a particularly important piece in the original family office days, you know, a generation ago, um, there was a lot of wisdom around having a non-family member own the family office. And I think that dates back to some quirks in the tax code back at that time. Today, it's typically owned within the family, but it could be a single family member. It could be a special purpose trust that owns the family office. That's a pretty common structure, I think, today. Uh, but it's not, it's not really determinative of, of how any of the uh, tax consequences or anything else run, other than, again, going back to that lender structure. Josh, let's spend a moment talking about why a family might choose to join a multifamily office rather than create their own single family office. Sure. When you look at the single family office versus multifamily office decision, I think you first have to go back and start again with this idea of what are the services that you're trying to provide? How many of them do you want to provide in-house versus having somebody else provide them? When you look at multifamily offices, do they provide all those services you want? And I would really say that the biggest difference or the two biggest reasons to look at one versus the other, on the multifamily office side, it's a much more cost-efficient structure. It's typically going to cost significantly less to go to a multifamily office than to set up a single-family office. On the other side of that continuum, I would say the single family office really offers a holistic look at the family's needs in a way that I personally believe no multifamily office can truly provide. It's basically, and we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later as we talk about my personal experiences. This is the part of me that wakes up every day and thinks, what does the Cantor family need today? If I don't do that as the president of our single family office, I don't know who does. So in the multifamily office context, you're giving up a little bit of that. But the multifamily office, again, is a very efficient structure. And, and as long as you can find the multifamily offices offering all the services that you want to be providing, then it can be a very effective way of going about this. So we've talked a lot about, or you've talked a lot about services, services that are being provided either, either through the MFO, the SFO. Speak briefly about what these services are. Yeah, I would say family office services can really fall into a number of different categories. It's probably most typical that family offices are, are thinking about some form of investment-related services. So that may be asset allocation, it may be selection of managers, it might be oversight and just monitoring of investments. Then you've got probably a whole area of wealth and tax planning and administration. So that could be whether you're um, just overseeing or in-housing estate and tax planning and compliance. Um, that again can be everything from you know, accounting and tax returns and all of these kinds of things to very sophisticated estate planning, depending upon how big the family is. Often the family office is involved in philanthropic planning and administration. So that may just be the administration of a family foundation or, um, again, 
even helping a family think about their values and their goals through their philanthropy. At an administration, administrative level, there may be more record-keeping and reporting to the family. As I mentioned earlier, there could be this idea of lifestyle or concierge services, various forms of risk assessment. So that could be looking at risk within a portfolio, kind of on that investment side, or that could be risk that can be avoided with insurance or any of those kinds of issues, personal security as well. Strategy for the family, uh, governance and education becomes obviously a big thing. The bigger the family is and the more you're thinking about this idea of multi-generational wealth, the more you're really thinking about issues of governance and engagement and education, particularly of coming gen rising generations. And so all of those different things can be looked at, um, again, through the lens of, I want to in-house these or I want to outsource these. And how do I, how do I go about that? I could imagine that if you're a single family office and you want all of those services, you're still going to outsource some of them because you're not going to be able to have in-house all of that expertise. It's just going to be too expensive and probably the family isn't going to need it on that type of a full-time basis, but perhaps I'm wrong. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Because I think that also blends into the question about the virtual family office and how you can um, have maybe not the expense of the brick and mortar, but still provide those services on a more bespoke basis. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Robin. I mean, the, only the largest of largest families that have this on a really ongoing basis, you know, need to or really should be considering probably in-housing every one of those functions. And those are really large offices. They may have 10 to 25 people in the office providing all these different functions. And a lot of those, of course, may be on the investment side. Smaller offices certainly are outsourcing some of those services that they need on a more bespoke or more infrequent basis. So um, they may bring in a consultant to do family governance and education, which is a hard thing to have somebody full-time that does, or they may partner with a, I'm going to your comment about virtual family office, they may start to outsource something like concierge services or bill pay or, any of these other kinds of things that are easier to rely on your outside vendors for, but you still have that internal quarterback role that's really sort of at the center of the wheel and spoke kind of model to be able to holistically provide all those services to the family. Okay, so now that we've kind of laid the foundation with all of these different terminologies, FSOs, VFOs, MFOs, and the like, the lender <laughs> structure, Let's kind of like step all the way back and imagine that you're a family who's thinking about, should we consider creating our own family office? What are some of the questions that they should be asking themselves and what would even precipitate them even wanting to ask those questions? Well, I think when you're really considering the idea of creating a family office, you really have to first start with what's the problem that you're solving for? What are you really trying to accomplish and how do you want to accomplish it? Again, kind of going back to that menu of services, Maybe you want to build an investment team in-house. Maybe you want to outsource it, but you want your oversight to be in-house. So any of these different services, you really have to think about, again, kind of what's this problem that you're solving for and how then do you want to offer that service? Who do you want to be offering that service to? Family offices often start just by servicing what is probably unfairly referred to as G1, the first generation of the wealth creator, which typically means there's going to be a single matriarch and patriarch or, or two partners of some kind who are at the tip of that spear. And that's going to look very different than if you're three, four, five generations down and servicing hundreds of households and hundreds of family members. To some extent, I'd say it's kind of a classic rent or own decision. Do you want to go rent these services somewhere or do you want to own these services in-house? The precipitating events is interesting. You know, wealth is clearly a, a factor. 
you know, you don't go think about setting up a single family office on your first day of your your new job as you get out of high school or college or grad school. Having said that, it's probably most typical that people are looking at the family office decision somewhere around some kind of liquidity event or realizing that there's been enough capital pulled out of an operating business to really mean that these other functions are are happening or the family is growing or maybe there're you know multiple shared assets over multiple generations a variety of different things can really precipitate that question let's spend a few moments talking about the costs now and it's something that i actually am working on right now with the board of a particular family enterprise that i'm i sit on their board it's about setting up certain structures now that maybe are going to be very expensive into the future and giving consideration to that. And frankly, Josh, had you not planted that seed in my head, I don't know that I would have been pushing the family to give this that much thought. But now that you did, I'd like you to speak to it here. And I certainly am going to be thinking about it when I talk with them. Well, cost is, is a huge factor, obviously. So the cost issue, Robin, is really a significant issue when you're talking about a, a family office or particularly a single family office. And as you look at the services, again, that you're going to in-house and how you're going to staff those services, if you look at the studies that are out there, depending upon what you put in what bucket, probably somewhere between 60 and 80% of the cost of a family office is really people and benefits. And that makes sense because obviously you're not manufacturing anything. You probably have very little brick and mortar, as you said earlier. That really goes along with it. Maybe you've got some office space that you're renting. Smaller family offices these days are typically uh, said to run around a million and a quarter, a million and a half dollars at the low end. And significant large family offices can run into the millions and millions of dollars to operate. So again, you're really looking at, is that worth the cost? And then I would say back to that rent or own decision is that I think you have to really carefully look at the long-term uh, impact of that cost. So many of the things that family offices do, for example, you and I have talked about, if you're going to set up a direct investing function, meaning you're going to do direct venture capital, you're going to do direct private equity, you're going to do direct real estate, you're not doing these through managers, you're not doing them through funds, and you're going to build a staff with the talent to do that. So you now have a chief investment officer. Maybe you've got somebody who's really responsible for any of those different categories of direct investing. That's a long-term decision. That's not something you can reverse on a dime. If you start doing venture capital today, as you well know, that means you're in it for the next 10 to 15 years, maybe longer. If you start doing private equity, same idea, right? Same with real estate. So you're building infrastructures that will have costs that go out certainly for decades, maybe for generations if you're not careful. So you really have to think about, are you in these things for the long run? Are you putting enough capital at play to make them make sense? And really all those different questions. And, can, and again, can you rent those services for less money if that's a better option? So let me make certain I'm understanding you correctly. When you're contemplating what whether you're going to start a family office and what that family office is going to look like, you need to think about, well, what are the services we want to provide? How long term do we want to provide those services? And what kind of costs do we want to then take on over that long term period? Am I getting that right? Yeah, I think that's right. And the one the one piece I would add to that is then how important is this idea of holistic or integrated service provision, right? And what I mean by that, I'll give you one more example. When we became a family office, part of the reason we became a family office is we were embedded in a two-decade battle with the Internal Revenue Service, and we had an enterprise structure that was wildly complex. So the integration of those services became 
a really important factor in us making that decision. And in our tax case, it was really interesting to me. You know, I grew up around tax law, and yet until I got deeply into this tax case, I had no real recognition of how many specialties there were in the tax area. So we had trial counsel, we had appellate counsel, we had Supreme Court counsel, our case went to the US Supreme Court, we had innocent spouse counsel, we had collection counsel. I think in the end, we had seven different tax specialties, all being blended together. And each of them would come to me and say, hey, this is how we fight this particular issue. And only because I was there playing quarterback and holistically looking at this, could I say, no, 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 because if you win on that issue in the way that you're typically winning, I'm going to lose on this issue over here and that kind of holistic integrated approach. So I use that as an example for the whole family office ecosystem, but that's the kind of integration that I think the single family office can provide that nobody else can provide. And that becomes an important decision point. How important is that to your family? So you and I have actually spent, we've known each other a couple of years now, and we've spent some time talking about the, maybe even more than a couple of years. Um, and you and I have spent time talking about the role that you personally play with your family. And I think you've called it the 20% of everything about the Canner family and all the generations and the branches. Who, who else would know that? Who else would understand that? Share with the audience what the specifics around what you and I have talked about and how I personally think how important it is to have the Josh Cantor running the Cantor family office and that that can't be replaced in any of these scenarios and how critical it is to have that person who has, who has that, what I call institutional knowledge, who can pull all the pieces together and make certain that if I push down this button and something else pops up, I'm not going to cause irreparable harm to the family. Yeah. Interesting. I've only been in a family office, my own. So, um, you know, back to the cliche, you know, if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. If you've run one family office, you've run one family office. One of the things sort of deep in that question is also the importance or, or the distinction between whether your kind of quote unquote C-suite is uh, held by family members or non-family members or a combination of that. We're in fact in the process of becoming more of a virtual family office. And, and part of the decision about that has been around there is nobody in our family really to take over. There's no succession plan that makes sense for me or my brother. My brother runs our direct investment program. And so we're really trying to look at what does succession look like for the two of us. But at the same time, the 20% that you referred to, I would say I keep talking about as I don't know how to outsource that last 20%, the part of me that wakes up every day and says, how does this piece fit with that piece? How do I think about the insurance requirements for the family and how does that impact estate planning and how does that impact risk management and how does how does it impact liquidity, you know, all everything that comes together, including family governance and education. So it becomes a really complicated map or web of all these different interconnected pieces. And that's the piece that I, I probably would say, I don't know how to outsource. I don't think an MFO can do it. In the VFO, the virtual family office context, I hope to that I'll continue to play that role as we outsource more of the other functions. Starting a single family office is a big challenge, but at the same time, I think it's probably in the long run, if you really care about the growth and preservation of multifamily, multi-generational wealth, it's probably the single most valuable thing you'll ever do. So let's, let's go to a personal note for a moment. So you started out as a lawyer and you practiced for over a decade. 
did you ever think that you were going to end up being the head of your family's family office? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, this was definitely not a path that I set out to take on at all. First of all, my dad was a classic. We thought he would die at 100 at his desk working. Um, he unfortunately died at 71, very unexpectedly. And I really was, you know, I grew up in his shadow, typical Chicago, whatever, successful father, wanted to go, you know, blaze my own path and do my own thing. And um, and I really enjoyed, actually, I'm one of the few lawyers on the planet who I think says, I really liked being a lawyer. <laughs> I was really good at it and I liked it. And so the, this idea of coming into the family, I also, though, I think I was raised with a set of values that was you do what you need to do and family comes first. And so when faced with the situation when my dad got sick and we knew that, you know, things were not going to be tied up with a pretty bow when when he passed away, it's kind of what I had to do. But I will say also to the difficulty of it, it's hard for me to imagine, you and I have talked about this as well, that there's anybody who could have been better prepared for this role. It's hard. Like I was woefully unprepared for what was, you know, going to come at me and what what laid ahead. And and I'm about as well-trained for this as you can be. Does an unexpected death often end what was hoped to be a family business? Yeah, I think it often does. I think succession in a family, in a family office, in an operating business is among the most important things that people can think about and plan for. You know, I, I talk about the untimeliness of my dad's death, but the reality is, you know, he didn't get hit by the proverbial bus or have a heart attack. He got cancer. And we had 18 months to plan. We didn't know what, how long it would be, but we had 18 months in the end to plan for it. That's pretty unusual that you get that opportunity. I think it's just critically important that people think about those consequences. And, and in some instances, maybe that's, oh, we have to sell the business because we have to pay the estate tax. But the reality is it's much more likely to be because nobody had the right communication and, and was prepared to own this business together. And what does it mean in our case for three siblings to own this enterprise together and to be joined at the hip in, in everything that we did? And, and is that okay? And do you have, have you been able to communicate about, well, distributions are more important than growing the business to this branch or that branch. And, um, you know, this branch has three kids and that branch has two kids. And, you know, these are complicated, complicated things that come up in the family office context. And if you haven't spent the time learning those communication skills and creating those governance structures, it's, uh, it can really, it can blow a business apart. It can blow a family apart. I think one of the other things that becomes really interesting to me, you know, I, I took over one of our portfolio companies. We were in the venture capital business for many years. And I took over one of our portfolio companies at one point. And we had to put it through bankruptcy. And my bankruptcy lawyer in Oklahoma said to me, look, you need to understand you're now running two businesses. You're running the business of the, of the business and you're running the business of the bankruptcy. And that was eye-opening. And I've taken that into the family office world and said to people, you need to understand you're running two businesses. You're running the business of the business, whatever that is. And you're running the business of the family. And those are two different businesses. And you have to be willing to dedicate as much time and attention and nurturing to the business of running the family as you do to running the operating business. Or as you said, it, you know, it'll blow up, it'll be sold, it'll... And, I, and by the way, I don't care what that operating business is. That doesn't have to be a widget manufacturer. That can be an investment portfolio. It's really about the amount of attention that you're paying to the business of the family. 
I would say that the Kenner family was extremely lucky that they had you to take over and run it and wake up every day and go to sleep every night thinking about it because you have both the business and the legal acumen. So I'd say they're really fortunate. Well, thank you. I hope so. (laughs) Let's pivot for a moment and talk about when a family should not create its own family office. In my law firm, we have a lot of what I call first generation youngish entrepreneurs who have been founders and sold their businesses and are now in the stage of, should I create a family office? It sounds like something sexy that I should do. And I often say to my partners, they need to really think about why. And you and I have spent a lot of time in this uh, podcast right now talking about the various services, what you want to provide and so forth. But now let's talk about just when some a family just should not do it. Well, I think, you know, we could go back to the cost issue that we talked about earlier, right? Is, are you prepared to take on this cost? And are you prepared to take it on on a long term basis? Um, so one answer to not doing it would be you simply can't justify the cost. Another answer would be, quite frankly, you simply don't want to, it's a lot of work. It's a it's a whole other thing that you're deciding to do. And if you understand that, you know, one thing I would say is, most importantly, when you are thinking about a family office, go in eyes wide open, right? You have to understand what you're getting yourself into. Um, and it's easy to get in. It's hard to get out. So I think that, you know, take baby steps, right? Maybe you start with an MFO. Maybe you start with a BFO. Maybe you start with an embedded family office. Whatever these things are, you know, take those baby steps. All right, let's take a break now for our sponsors, and then we'll come back and speak to Josh about if a family decides to create an SFO, what are the first steps? This podcast is sponsored and produced by SMB Interim Management and Yate Advisors. SMB Interim Management works with privately owned businesses that request assistance to solve significant time-sensitive operational challenges. SMB's core business is the placement of an interim C-suite executive to assist in solving critical operational challenges or to shepherd an organization through an unexpected departure. Their executives are uniquely matched to the industry and challenge for each assignment. SMB has a proven group of over 700 senior executives that can be deployed on short notice to solve the client's issues and then exit. Contact SMB at smbim.com. That's smbim.com. Yet Advisors helps law firms build family business practices. Through team coaching and consulting, Yate helps lawyers create demand for their legal services by recognizing their unique needs of family businesses. Yate will help your firm understand family businesses and develop solutions to their most important challenges. Find us at yatesadvisors.com, Y-A-T-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. Welcome back. We are here talking with Josh Cantor about family offices, and we're now going to turn to the topic of if your family decides they've gone through the arduous process of actually being intentional about creating a a single family office and going in with your point, their eyes wide open. What are the first steps? Well, I think the first step, as we talked about earlier, is probably thinking again about that service offering and maybe having somebody who's been down that path. You know, there are lots of consultants who will talk people through that process of thinking about what is that service offering they want to be providing. And then also thinking about those structural options that we talked about earlier as well. 
Let me just ask you this. There are lots of lawyers and accountants who have done lots of, whether it's legal work or accounting work for family offices, whether it's helping to set them up, whether it's helping with their structure. How important is it to engage somebody who actually can go out and speak to all the family members and pull everybody together to really figure out, is this what our family wants? These are the services we should provide. To your point earlier, what kind of distributions are we looking for? Are we looking to grow the wealth instead? I want to get a sense from you, Josh, as to what kind of advisors people should be trying to engage on this. Do we want to talk to somebody who's actually what I would call a pure family office consultant? Really interesting question. I think it depends a lot on maybe the individual circumstances of the family. I mean, obviously, this would be a little different if you're dealing with mom and dad who have elementary school kids than if you have 70 or 80-year-old partners running a family who have 40 and 50-year-old kids. But I think to your point, I would surround myself with a group of experts, and that may be an accounting expert, a legal expert, and it might be a family office expert who can really guide the family through some of these more philosophic questions. So it's having a team of advisors around you, which I know to some might sound kind of expensive, but I think it's a cost well worth it so that you set it up the right way the first time around so that you're not fixing problems that maybe could have been addressed early on had you given more intentional thought about it. All right. So after you've got this team of advisors around you, what would be the next steps after that? I think, again, certainly thinking about that service offering is going to be probably the first step and how you're going to staff that. And then I think the second big step I would consider is how does that fit with the overall enterprise structure? And what I mean by that is the family office, you know, people talk about a family office as though it's sort of the panoply of, of everything that goes on in the family, but it's just one entity. I know we talked a little bit about succession and we only really briefly touched on it, but I actually think into you, and you, you mentioned it, you said this is something that is really critically important, whether it's a family business, a family office, a family enterprise, how does one go about thinking about succession in a family office? When you want to have that person who wakes up thinking about the family office and goes to bed thinking about it, who's going to be Josh Cantor's successor? If you don't have somebody within your family, when do you start figuring out how to groom somebody or how to replace the 20% of Josh? Well, it's not 20% of Josh. It's the 20% that Josh, that can't be outsourced. (laughs) I should have said that better. There you go. Well, I guess the easy answer is when I figure that out, I'll come back on the podcast and tell you. (laughs) But until then... (laughs) I think succession is really important that, you know, you should be thinking from the day you get a job. Interestingly, in the family office space, of course, succession is often generational. It's not, it doesn't happen very often. And so you have to be thinking about it in some sense all the time. And I think you have to be thinking about not just replacing the skills of the person who had them last, but what is it that the family office is evolving into and what is it that you want in the future and, and how are you going to overlap um, and look at that? So I'm going to ask you this before we recap with some takeaways. I know that you have obviously have lots of experience with your own family's family office. Uh, you and I actually are in a group with about 20 other families, family office leaders. And I know that you are in multiple groups with family offices and you consult with other families, family offices. Give us, if you wouldn't mind, some anecdotes or stories of, wow, this one has worked really, really well. And this one, this family office has not worked so well. And these are 
lessons learned? Well, I'll try. I, I think I tend to hang out with um, family offices and the group that you mentioned is, is full of family offices that have been successful at running family offices. And so it's a little harder outside of the newspaper articles to find the ones that are the less successful. But first of all, that's the, that's the first place to look, right? You can all, we can all pick up the Wall Street Journal and find sister suing brother and you know, mom and dad not talking to the kids and, or turn on HBO and watch Succession. I think the ones that work well really focus on communication and the relationships. And again, I'd say this idea of the business of running the family, those relationships and communication, if you don't focus on those, it's not going to work. And that's where I'd say the family offices that work do the best job. What do service providers to family offices or businesses need to know to better serve a family office? I think they mostly need to know that one size doesn't fit all. They need to understand the family. They need to understand that not everybody in the family has the same goals and aspirations. They need to know, I mean, it depends, I suppose, on the service that's being provided. It's complicated to truly and well serve as an advisor, a family that you're working for. Who is the family office accountable to? So for example, to whom do you consider yourself accountable to as the president or head of your family's family office? Yeah, I guess I consider our family uh, to basically have six shareholders. We have three siblings at my generation and the three spouses. Um, that, by the way, is a philosophic question that families have to reach. We did it from day one that spouses were, there was no difference between blood and non-blood. Spouses were kind of, quote unquote, full voting members of the family. Um, but I feel very responsible to all six of my shareholders and, and all of our kids. And those are, those are who I consider my client and my bosses. Does your family office have a board or are you familiar with other family offices that have boards to whom the heads of the family office may be accountable to? Yeah, I mean, the whole governance piece of this is, you know, is a really interesting conversation as well. So we could go down that rabbit hole for a second. But in our situation, I look at kind of the six of us as what I would refer to as a family council. We do it very informally. Some families do it very formally. That family council basically oversees certain mission and philosophic conversations. We have then the formal entity that is the single family office, and that has a technically it's got a board of directors that answers to the family council. And then kind of left and right of the family office, we have sort of the nonprofit sector, the family's foundation and any donor advice funds and things like that, where the family office is providing services, but those structures have their own governance. And off to the other side, I would say we have kind of the operating entities, whether that's an operating business or in our case, investment entities. And those have their own legal structures, obviously LLCs or C-Corps and boards of directors and shareholders and trustees and all of that. So it's kind of a web of governance by the time you really you know, get through it. And every family, again, probably looks a little bit different and following those kind of formal and informal governance structures. You know, we had a... a podcast series with a with Bill Hudson, who talked a lot about bringing on independent directors. Where would those independent directors, if at all, have a place in your family office governance web? Yeah, for us, I would say, because we don't really have an operating business per se. We don't make widgets. We're a financial asset family at this point. But we did create an investment committee. And I think the podcast that you and, and Bill did really talked about it more at the operating company level and the importance of independent directors. We replicated that by, for many years, we actually had an outside board member on our foundation board. Uh, and then on the investment side, as I said, we've created an investment committee that includes outsiders. 
And I think it brings knowledge, it brings perspective, it brings discipline, and families are not immune to the benefits of having that independent thought process. You've shared with me, and if you're comfortable sharing now, I would really appreciate it, the benefit of having these independent advisors when you're making certain investment decisions because you've told me about certain venture capital decisions that your family's made, that in retrospect, perhaps if you had more independent voices around the table, those decisions might have gone a little differently. Yeah, though, I mean, one of the ones I know I've shared with you, Robin, is that by not having that independence at that time, you know, we did what many people do in the venture capital business, and we kept going down the rabbit hole with a company that we probably should have stopped. And ultimately, we lost way more than we should have had we had the discipline in place we probably would have stopped earlier. Josh, oftentimes family offices are created by the first or maybe the second generation, but usually the first generation. And at the time that they're created, the value that that family office is providing to the family is often not communicated to the second or third generation, or it's not communicated widely to them. And then by the third, fourth, or fifth generation, they're looking back and saying, oh, Why why do we have this very expensive family office? What value is it providing to me? So my question for you is, how how do you demonstrate for those who are providing the services to the family office that you're actually providing value to the family? And then for those who are receiving the services from the family office, how do you assess whether you're getting value out of the family office? It's a really interesting question because I think as you're saying, family offices and families are constantly struggling with this question of the value. And as you said, family offices are often created by that first generation of wealth creator who's setting it up to provide the services that they want. And then those future generations are saying, why do we have this? And so I would say it goes back to the communication issue. It's really important to get buy-in from everybody, to build structures that have flexibility, And to constantly be reassessing that in a way that people can feel ownership of the family office, they can understand the benefit that they're getting, and particularly that they understand that the benefit they're getting is more than, I'll say, the last 10 basis points of investment return, that they understand that there's a value, even if it's hard to quantify, by holistically looking at how does the insurance piece fit with the trust piece, fit with the estate planning piece, fit with the investment portfolio, fit with, I just bought a new place in Aspen, you know, whatever the questions may be. And I think that's incumbent on the family office to make sure that everyone understands the things they're working on, how that benefits everyone, and making sure that there's a way of establishing the values that are behind the value, (laughs) if you will, of the family office, so that not everybody has to get the exact same benefit from the family office, and they won't. Again, also looking at that, that flexibility, you know, I, I truly believe that if you create optionality, if you create on-ramps and off-ramps for family members, people with an exit strategy typically won't take it. When you talk about communicating what value you're bringing, talk to me tactically about what that communication looks like. Are we talking about touching base? Are we talking about having more scheduled and regular meetings? Are we talking about email blasts? So I think the answer for me, Robin, would be it's an all of the above approach. It really is customized to each family client, family member, making sure that you're meeting their needs and understanding their needs. This is a hard job, right? Being the head of a family office 
or anybody in the family office. It's a hard job because you have to be able to deal with different learning styles, different communication styles, different things that people need or need to know. I have a family member who I've been describing how trusts work for 20 years, every year for 20 years, and they still don't quite get it. And that's okay. I'm totally happy to go through it again and again and again, because it's a world I live in every day. It's not a world this family member lives in every day. And so understanding what each family needs and what they will perceive as value, it's important to understand their specific needs and how you can deliver and create value for them. So let's wrap up before we get to the key takeaways with a Just a quick summary or synopsis of Leaf Planner. I would appreciate you sharing with the audience the importance of documenting that non-financial information. When you and I started interacting and talking about your concept, and then you've now brought it to fruition, you were really focused on the non-financial side. And yet you're somebody who has the financial acumen, but saw the benefit of the non-financial side of pulling, compiling all this information. Yeah, I think it's exactly what you said. First of all, it's it's this focus on we have this, um, I think, in the family office world, we have a disparity in the amount of time and attention that's spent on financial data aggregation and reporting and a complete lack or maybe not complete, but a, a significant lack of attention on non-financial data aggregation or reporting. And so what I mean by that is really that how all these pieces fit together, why things were done, who's involved. Why are they involved? Who do you trust? Who do you know? Family offices, almost by definition, are multi-generational. I won't be here to answer those questions. My dad wasn't here when I found the safe deposit box receipt with no bank name and no date. He wasn't here when I first picked up an estate tax return, a Form 706, that I'd never seen before and asked questions that I couldn't answer that had he been around, I could have asked. I think you have this incredible importance in trying to put information together, this non-financial information about how all these pieces fit together. And there's no good way to do it. Everybody's got their closing binder, their estate documents, and that's great. And most law firms today will do a map of how that all works. Again, that's great, but it's not complete. It's not complete if you don't know how the trusts fit with the trustees, fit with the trust protectors fit with the deals that they own, fit with the assets and the liabilities and the people and the, you know, these are really complicated web. And when we talk about communicating, educating and preparing children and heirs, if they don't understand those things, I personally don't think we're doing our job. So that became a core of my mission to let my family know how all these things fit together. So if I get hit by the bus or drop dead of a heart attack, then they'll know how these, how it all fit together. You and I have talked about some of the different kinds of information that you personally have shared or put in there for your own family when you're no longer with us, which I hope is not for many, 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 many years. Talk about some of that, like the travel resort and so forth. Share some of those pieces of information that you think are critical and that I also have thought were really material for your family to know. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. I always find this is an interesting topic to bring up with people because People, even who think they're doing this, I would argue, chances are or not, right? They're, they're pulling together their estate documents. They might be leaving instructions of what they want happen, what to, they want to happen to an operating business. There are so many things, right, that rattle around in our heads, whether that's relationships, information, ideas, whatever it is. So I've had people who have done this process and said, oh, here are the 50 limited partnerships I'm in, and this is what my expectations are. 
Um, the vacation club that you mentioned, and you and I have talked about this, is, is always a funny one to me because my wife and I belong to a very high-end vacation club. When I went back to put this into my leaf plan or my owner's manual for my family, I was actually looking at the contract and realizing that, oh, wait a second, this is inheritable by my kids. As long as somebody calls the vacation club within 90 days of my death and tells them I'm dead. And so I was like, okay, wait, that's pretty time sensitive. So I now have this note in my leaf plan, which is what it's called, or my owner's manual to my family saying, hey, I hope you're still crying and mourning 90 days later, but don't forget to make this phone call. It's a really expensive phone call not to make. So we're trying to make sure that all of these little tidbits of information get picked up and, and included. And on the more serious side, I mean, that's pretty serious from a money standpoint, but no, on a right. more serious that, side a, also. Your um, kids will appreciate it, right. trust me. And I know you and I have also talked about the example, which I actually think is very heartfelt about non-family members who may be important to you, your wife, or you gave the example of somebody that was important to your parents. Yeah, we've built a section in this owner's manual idea and in, in Leaf Planner that really addresses exactly that. It's this idea of the non-family. Um, we call it the sphere of responsibility to really make sure that people are thinking broadly about who they have any level, moral or legal responsibility for in their lives. My parents, they had a housekeeper who had been with them for 40 years, and they didn't leave any notes about what they wanted done and how they wanted her to be treated. And it put a lot of pressure on my brother and sister and I to sit down. Now, granted, we could do it. We could sit down and say, let's be generous to, these, to this person who had been a big part of our lives as well, obviously. But wouldn't it have been nice for my parents to have left a note saying, hey, this is the kind of generosity we feel is appropriate. Or I've worked with a lot of families where, you know, maybe there's a mom and dad who are, are paying rent or tuition for a niece or nephew, or they're part of a big brother's big sister program or whatever it is, really more of a moral responsibility. But those are the things that don't make it into estate planning. How can we transfer that kind of information and say, it's important to me that this be continued? Again, those are just kind of the ideas that we're trying to get people to think about. And that's what Leaf Planner is. Yeah, sorry. That's what Leaf Planner is. Josh, this <laughs> has been absolutely terrific. If you could share what you consider to be probably the three or four main takeaways that you'd like to have uh, our listeners walk away from this session or podcast with, what would those be? Well, I'd go back to the very beginning and say, first of all, understand your goals. Really make sure that you're understanding, you know, this is, we've talked about it as eyes wide open and the service offering, um, but understand your goals for a family office. Make sure that your family office structure, whatever that is, or your decision aligns with those goals now and into the future and recognize that the future is hard to see. So you build in flexibility, make sure that you're thinking about how to change those decisions, get the right advice. So we talked about that in terms of surrounding yourself with a good team of advisors. And I think making sure that you establish your value to the family if you're if you are wearing that family office hat, you know, Family Office Exchange does this work on on family office value and Fidelity just did this thing on family office relevancy and Northern's done work on succession. And, you know, this stuff is all over the place, but it's really about making sure the family understands that value. Um, and you said it a second ago, I would say document, 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 communicate, communicate, communicate. <laughs> it's really it's really about making sure everybody is on the same page and stays on the same page. Josh, thank you. Just really thank you. It's been really informative. I appreciate your time here. Thank you. It's been great to be here with you. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast and hear more from family business leaders who have addressed issues of critical importance to family-owned business. For more information about the podcast, 
SMB Interim Management, Yate Advisors, or Robin Lechinger, visit us at FamilyBizLeadership.com. That's B-I-Z, Biz. FamilyBizLeadership.com. <laughs>